the book of Daniel. We are up to chapter five. Every chapter in this book is incredible. It's so dramatic. It's so full of action and uh, intrigue and uh, excitement that uh, you almost need a week in between each chapter just to digest all the things that were going on. And Daniel, of course, was living through all of this. And we have this incredible testimony and record of these events that we know have been verified by historical accounts. And we'll talk a little bit about history this morning because it plays very much into chapter five and the events that we read about there. Just to uh, remind ourselves, the uh, chronological order of the book is not quite the same as the chapters are given to us. So this morning uh, we're in chapter five, as we said. Now, chapter five actually occurs after the events of chapter seven and eight in Daniel. So chapter seven and eight, uh, we'll find there's some visions and uh, so on that Daniel receives and records for us. Uh, They occurred um, towards the... um, well, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar has uh, come uh, left the scene, but uh, before the events that we're going to be looking at this morning. So, um, and then following on from this morning, uh, next week, the Lord willing, we'll get into chapter six, a familiar passage, of course, speaking about the lion's den and so on. Uh, a few surprises there, things that maybe we've not seen before. Um, but this morning, a really, really pivotal chapter from a historical point of view. Um, but we really see that the Lord is not a God who can be mocked. Uh, of course, in the New Testament, Paul says that God is not mocked. Uh, and we he- we see that very, very clearly here. Now, just to give you some of the history of the times, you can see uh, from the screens there um, that we've got at the top Nebo Palaza. Uh, he was Nebuchadnezzar's dad. Uh, he dies uh, around about 606 uh, BC, 605 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar then ascends to the thrones. So Nebuchadnezzar's first year as king is counted from 605 BC, and he reigns all the way through to about six, uh, sorry, 562, because obviously we're counting down BC. Well, after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we then have one of uh, his sons, um, this individual by the name of Evil Merodach. Uh, named after one of their gods, uh, and that's uh, it's not a particularly long reign, as you can see, only a very short period of time, uh, and that then leads on to uh, this other individual, uh, Neriglissa, or probably mispronouncing all of these, who uh, comes to the throne for another short period of time, another one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons, that then leads on to uh, Labishi Marduk, again, another named after one of their gods. Only two months. He's very young when he comes to the throne. Doesn't last very long at all. And is uh, assassinated, is murdered. And that opens the way then for the kind of dynasty or the account that we start to see this morning. Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter um, by the name of Nitogris or something along those lines. Uh, and she marries this man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, by all accounts historically, was not very popular with the people of Babylon. Didn't go down well at all. Um, and so he decides he's going to leave the throne to his son. And he apparently moves down to Saudi Arabia. Not quite sure what he intended to do, whether he's looking to con- conquer the area or whatever. Um, but for, certainly historically, we know that he was effectively not forced out of Babylon, but made the decision to leave because it was just really an unpleasant experience. That then paves the way for this individual, Belshazzar, to step onto the, the throne of Babylon. 
Now, uh, you can see again, he's the son-in-law uh, of, uh, or, or sorry, he's married to the daughter. Correction, he is the, the son of the, the union between Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and then Nebuchadnezzar, who was, again, the, the son-in-law. And it's their offspring now that comes to the throne. So uh, Belshazzar's granddad was Nebuchadnezzar just to kind of get the context of who we're looking at and where. Don't get confused either uh, with the names, because Daniel, if you remember, was given a new name when he gets to Babylon, which is Belteshazzar. Very similar to Belshazzar, but slightly different spelling. Um, so don't confuse the two of them uh, when we look at these things. Uh, you'll find evil Merodach uh, mentioned in Second Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52 as well. And then you also find Nereglissa mentioned in Jeremiah 39. So these are kings that are also referred to in scripture. So let's jump into then this chapter. Now we begin with this statement. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Now on its own, it's a statement. It just tells us this king is going to have this great feast, this celebration, this party, and he's going to invite a thousand of his lords. Not uncommon in that time. But what is really bizarre is the timing. When we do a little bit of history, we find that Nebuchadnezzar has been dead now for about 23 years. He's been off, off the scene. And news that the United Medan and Persian empires were now on the move. And they were heading toward Babylon. And no doubt that would have filtered through to the palace by this point. We'll talk a little bit later in our study about King Cyrus, uh, this Persian king. This Persian king, incredible individual who managed to unite these two great empires, the Medans and the Persians, bring them all together into one very, very powerful empire. And they're on their way towards Babylon. Now, what would you do, given that scenario, when you know that this mighty army is marching against you? Bear in mind that Babylon are the, the principal empire in the world at this point. What should the king do? Well, he throws a party. Um, you know, he's obviously so confident that he's secure in Babylon. Babylon, of course, have these great big walls around it, so wide that apparently you can have chariot races around the top of the walls. They were so wide. And of course, they had the river Euphrates uh, running through the center of the city. So it provided it with constant water stream, this flow. Uh, they were able to grow their own produce and food. They could literally be a completely self-contained unit. They just shut the doors and could carry on. And almost irrespective of what was going on outside, Babylon was safe and secure. That seems to be the mindset of this king. Uh, and so he throws a party as if to say, I don't care. I'm safe. I'm not worried. Nothing's going to touch me. Of course, you've heard of the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the great uh, wonders of the ancient world. And again, the, the river Euphrates is a large um, component in that, providing this constant water source. And so we get into the, the second verse and we read, uh, Belshazzar, uh, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father, okay, so this is uh, Nebuchadnezzar now, so not, this is, in the scriptures, it's not a term grandfather, okay, so typically father, it could be your immediate father, or it could be somebody from whom you were descended, in this case, the reference is to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, commanded to bring the gold and silver vessels uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, 
that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. So this a thousand strong uh, royal party that's going on, they're going to get these vessels that have been taken from the temple in Jerusalem and they're going to drink out of them. So he's already, uh, we see his arrogance in throwing the party in the first place. His second mistake is desecrating these sacred vessels. Now, we need to go to the book of Isaiah to get a little bit of insight into this. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, uh, we see this. It says in chapter 39, at that time, uh, Merodach Baladan, uh, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. Just get the timing of this. This is now way before the events we're looking at this morning. This is before Babylon really rises to any significance on the world stage. And of course, Isaiah is alive. So it's something about 200 years or so, uh, 150 years, certainly before these events. Um, and Hezekiah, if you remember, had been sick. So this uh, envoy from um, Babylon comes to see Hezekiah. For he'd heard that he'd been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them. And notice this. And showed them the house of his precious things. Notice what he showed them. The silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointments and all the armor of his house and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, oh, they come from a far country unto me. You know, we do that all the time, don't we? Somebody kind of calls us to a question and we try and put a, a spin on it to make it seem not as bad as suddenly we become aware that it is. And obviously Hezekiah suddenly realizing that he's uh, dropped the ball here on this one. Uh, and so he says, well, they've come from a far country. Uh, well, yes, Babylon was a long way away. Uh, he says, even from Babylon, um, but not that far that it wasn't going to present a real problem. And then said he, this is Isaiah says, what have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, all that is in mine house they have seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I've not shown them. Of course, Hezekiah, a little bit of pride here, wanted a boast, wanted to show off everything he's got, his wealth and all the things he's accumulated. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day, notice, shall be carried to Babylon. And that's exactly what happens. And the verse goes on and says, nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. This isn't just Hezekiah, sorry, Isaiah saying this. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Notice also, and of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away and they shall be eunuchs, interesting, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Of course, Daniel is one of that group, as are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, those individuals that are taken away of the royal line. Uh, and so this prophecy that is given way back here in Isaiah uh, chapter 39, speaking of what was going to happen, and of course now we're seeing that it has happened, when we opened the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah came, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with, notice this, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels, notice this, these are the vessels come from the temple, into the treasure of the house of his God. And that's exactly where now uh, where Belshazzar sends to bring these vessels in that they can use them in this celebration. 
So back into Daniel 5. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. Daniel recorded this, of course. And the king and his princes, his wives, his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. Daniel making this record for us, giving us this account of what they did. Uh, it's interesting how, you know, all these individuals were just so happy to to do this. As far as they were concerned, their gods were the real gods. They had no regard for any other god. But look at what it was that they worshipped. They worshipped gods of gold and of silver, of brass and of iron, of wood and of stone. I mean, what help would they be in a, a, a problem, uh, in a situation like they're about to face? If we read Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah says this, Every man is brutish by his knowledge. Every founder, that's somebody who crafts or makes something, is confounded by the graven image. For his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are vanity, the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. In other words, when it comes to a, a sticky spot, a difficult time, they can do nothing. They can't survive. They won't be able to stand up and help you. These are just the gods that the nations worship. And these are just uh, objects that man has created. Uh, man is the same today. Man creates his own gods to worship. In, in Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah said this, Hear ye the word of the Lord, uh, which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, lean not to, uh, sorry, learn not the ways of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with an axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. They are upright as a palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born. Someone's got to carry them because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is in them to do good. Jeremiah just underlining the futility of the gods that the Babylonians and others worshipped at that time. Their idols, this is from Psalm 115. There's a really important uh, comment regarding these idolatrous uh, gods that were manufactured. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. I mean, just underlines just how useless these things are. But this is a really telling statement. Verse 8 of Psalm 115 says this, They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. Remember Chuck Misler commenting a number of times that we become like the gods we worship. And of course, if you worship the world, if you worship materialism, if you worship the gods that are in the world today, the man-made things, you will become like the world. You'll become cold, unloving, uncaring, unfeeling. You know, you'll become so intent on looking after your own gratification and satisfaction. If, on the other hand, you worship the one true God, then you will become like him. You'll be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And of course, that is the goal of every follower of Jesus. David made a wonderful statement in prayer when he prayed that he couldn't wait to be awakened in the likeness of God. You know, so that all that the sin, all the the uh, 
stain of this world is removed from us. Um, so it's just an important lesson that whatever it is people worship, they will become like those things. And of course, you know, we look at the Babylonians and these cultures that David in Psalms and Jeremiah and Daniel here refers to, you know, and we think it's foolish that they would worship gods like that. And yet, what do we worship? You know, man worships all sorts of things. There are many who worship football teams or some sporting uh, situation. There are many that worship materialism uh, and their God is what they can acquire. That's what they invest their time and efforts and energies into. You know, for others, it can be uh, any kind of hobby or pursuit they go after. It becomes their God that they, they trust in it. Of course, people worship and follow after things like horoscopes and those kind of things today. And none of those things can help. In the day of trouble, they can do nothing. They won't provide. They won't help. Uh, they won't give any assistance. And that is what the gods worship. And, you know, as uh, many have commented in the past, you know, we've invented a far more insulting God than even the Babylonians and those uh, cultures back in the day, because we now have the, the God of evolution, this idea that we don't need a creator to bring everything into being. Uh, and what an insult to the creator God who has created everything so incredibly uh, intricately designed. You know, we look and we see design everywhere we go. Uh, we see symmetry that cannot come about through random processes. We see order in all the things that we look at in nature. You know, that doesn't happen by random processes. And yet our children right from a young age now are taught that everything around us is the result of randomness and time and chance and evolution. You know, and that is a God that the majority of people in this world have fallen down and bowed down and worshipped. So we are no better. Uh, we are, in fact, even more foolish, uh, as uh, Jeremiah said, that they are brutish. You know, we, that's exactly what the world has become like. Just just devoid of logic and wisdom and understanding in thinking these things through and worshipping these false gods. So this is what they bring out these temples, uh, these, these um, uh, cups and vessels uh, from the, the temple of their god. And they bring them into this banqueting hall to uh, drink from these vessels so that they can um, get drunk, have this uh, party together. Well, we go on. And it says, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now, just a couple of things really just interesting to note here. Uh, I mean, this is firstly going to be enough to ruin anyone's party. But just notice what we're specifically told in the text. That the fingers come forth. It's a man's hand wrote against. Notice where it writes. It writes against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall. You know, this writing didn't just appear on the wall in any old place. It appeared in the brightest spot in the room where it was being illuminated. So that everybody, all the thousand that were gathered there, would be able to see what was on the wall. Now, of course, that's a, not a, an accurate picture of the uh, event, but you get the impression how incredible this thing would have been, all lavish, laid out, and suddenly in the midst of their revelry, they see this writing on the wall. Now, that's what we suspect the writing would have been like. I'll come back to it and talk about it in a while. Of course, it's Hebrew, uh, but we'll look at why uh, the others couldn't uh, interpret this and why Daniel was able to interpret this in a while. We read, then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. Now, there is an undeniably humorous side to the situation as we look on. So uh, this is 
an account here of this man. Uh, obviously, his knees are knocking together, but the other statement there that the joints of his loins were loosened. Um, let's just say that as a result of this situation, he's struck with fear so much that he needs the bathroom but doesn't make it in time. That is, in essence, what the, the text is saying. You know, and again, this is the only individual in Scripture um, who we have a, a record in Scripture that he had this particular problem. Uh, again, uh, you know, it, very, very embarrassing situation for him. Um, and of course, remember that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. So for eternity, this record of this problem that this king has is recorded in Scripture as if to completely humble uh, him. You know, those that are uh, built up by pride, the Lord has a way of abasing. Uh, and again, it's incredible because we'll find that this was prophesied 200 years before the event we're going to look at that scripture uh, before we get to the end now we carry on for now though the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the chaldeans and the soothsayers absolute panic now you can imagine and the king spoke and said to the wise men of babylon whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom so this is a proclamation that the king makes at this point. Now, typically people turn to religion when they're in times of trouble. Um, sadly, they often turn to religion and not to God. And we saw back in chapter two, just as Nebuchadnezzar did there when he had his dream, that he turned to the professional religionists of the day. Um, you know, looking for professional religious leaders, people who make a career out of this thing. But of course, they seldom give the answers. And it's just the same today. You know, much is made in our day of ordained ministers. You know, and if there's a crisis, if there's a problem in the world, we'll see them on telly with their dog collars on or whatever other paraphernalia they wear, uh, just to express their humility so you know who they are. Uh, you know, and the world looks to them for advice or certainly for their opinion. Um, and yet, these are the ones we see undermining the very word of God they claim to follow and compromising in order to be seen to be politically correct. And yet they step forward as if they are a spokesperson for God himself. You know, those ordained and appointed by men will forever be answerable to man. We read on verse eight. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Now, we asked the question, why is it that they couldn't read the writing? Well, there could be a number of reasons. It could be that they read it, but didn't want to interpret it because they read, they understood what it was saying. So when it says they could not read the writing, uh, that it may be that they were unwilling to, to vocalize uh, or make known, explain to the king. But more likely it was because the writing itself was encrypted. It wasn't just words on a wall. It was words that had actually been encrypted. So unless you could decipher the code, you wouldn't be able to tell what it was. So they couldn't interpret it at all. Verse 9 goes on and says, Then uh, was King Belshazzar greatly troubled. So it's intensifying. He was troubled, now he's greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were as stonied. Uh, we have that great King James word there. Now in verse 6, Belshazzar was troubled, and his countenance changed. 
uh, now notice this uh, it seems to be intensifying he's now really worried uh, the Aramaic implies exceedingly terrified and of course it's obvious not only because of what's happened to him physically um, but also it appears from that word astonied the Aramaic is this word shibash that his lords were perplexed because of the king's reactions now again probably quite embarrassed to see what the king himself was going through um, but the whole situation here was such that there was a real degree of concern and alarm about what was going on. And maybe the king, before even getting the interpretation, knew enough to realize that he had crossed a line in taking these vessels that were the vessels from the house of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, and to use these things in his revelry. <clears throat> Again, wasn't this the king who threw in a party to demonstrate his invincibility? You know, now he not only effectively wet his pants in public, uh, but he turned as white as a sheep because no one can explain what this writing means. Now, just to note the transgression, really, of Belshazzar here, you know, we've seen him make four mistakes. Firstly, the overconfidence, pride, something that God detests, that God hates. Then there's this open defiance of the God of heaven in verse two, where he takes these vessels, totally disregarding God, treating him as nothing and then drinking to excess and then worshipping these false gods. So all of these things lead to the situation. You know, seldom do people who are in such open rebellion not know why judgments come upon them. And I suspect that even at this point, Belshazzar, part of his fear was that he recognised that this was some form of judgment, some sort of decree or writing against him. <clears throat> so why is it that uh, people in such open rebellion um, carry on in such a way? Well, they think they're going to get away with it until such a time. And of course, the king's conscience no had already been uh, convicted before him, before anything had been spoken. You know, people are wise after the event, uh, but often arrogant beforehand. Verse 10. Now the queen. Now, by saying the queen here, uh, it seems to be the queen mother uh, that is in view, that is in question. Uh, so this is the daughter of uh, Nebuchadnezzar now. Uh, comes into the, the sea. She hadn't been there. She'd not been part of this. You'll see that in a second. We read that the queen, by reason of the words of the king and of his lords, that is, go and get somebody to help, go and get somebody to interpret. Clearly, there's big hoo-ha. People are running around trying to find the Magi and the Chaldeans and all the wise men, the sorcerers, you know, running through the streets of Babylon saying, Wait, we've got a problem. The king needs somebody to come and interpret this message on the wall. And so the, the queen would have heard this. And I came into the banquet house and the queen spoke and said, Oh, king, live forever. Can I detect maybe a tongue-in-cheek comment there? Uh, let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. Um, yeah, almost. Yeah. So, so what is the problem? Uh, and you, you, you're going to see here that the queen really doesn't have a lot of uh, regard for her son's actions at this point. Now, as I said, the person referred to here is the queen. Uh, we seem to understand from history with the Queen Mother. Uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, uh, makes the comment that this was Nitocres, who was the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so that's the father of Belshazzar, and she was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and Herodotus uh, mentions that she was a woman of extraordinary prudence. Now, it's interesting because she would, of course, have known Daniel. She would have been aware 
firsthand that Daniel had been the one to look after and care for her father during that seven years that we were looking at last week when he was off eating grass like a cow. And Daniel would be the one that had stuck by the king, that had remained faithful and had kept the throne effectively uh, for the king. So that after that situation, that seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was able to return to, return to his throne. And no doubt this queen, uh, Nitocris, would have been aware of this and no doubt very grateful to Daniel and uh, possibly even um, in awe and maybe even uh, reverently fearing the God of Daniel. Because we read that she says, verse 11, there is a man in thy kingdom. So she says, don't worry, because there is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Interesting statement, isn't it? The holy gods, the father, the son and the holy spirit. And in the days of thy father, that's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father. So you you get the context. It's clearly referring to grandfather, but the wording is such that it says father. But you, you see it's clearly saying Nebuchadnezzar, the king. I say thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. So it's saying that Daniel was put in charge of all of these individuals because he was better and brighter and sharper. Ten times so is what we're told at the end of chapter uh, one uh, as they'd finished their training. Um, And clearly God had used these individuals. We've already seen Daniel interpret the dream for Nebuchadnezzar chapter two and the events of chapter three with the golden image and the fiery furnace and so on. And so the queen says, now the queen mother says, you know, don't worry, there is somebody that can interpret. Don't let it trouble you. I can find somebody to answer this. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and uh, dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. So she is interesting because she says, now let Daniel be called. She, as a Babylonian, calls Daniel by his Jewish name. Now that's got to tell you something. And she says that she must have respected him and acknowledged, at very least, that he had this love and reverence and regard for the God of Israel. And she clearly respects that. Uh, So now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Now, she's not consulted with Daniel, but clearly she knows the kind of character, the kind of person that Daniel is. And so she is there's a real put down here for the king because she speaks about, you know, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you're more or less saying now that was a real king uh, in regards to the way he conducted himself. And certainly this son of hers now disgracing himself in public. <clears throat> so. See, Daniel had a great witness, you know, maybe, as I said, because he cared for her father for that seven years of chapter four. Um, You know, she presents his brief resume now that is clearly bound to impress. And she acknowledges in chapter verse 11 that the spirit of the holy gods is in him. As we said, so uh, Daniel, by the way, would now be around 81 years of age. You know, often we read these things and we we have our kind of a mental picture of however old we think he may be. But he would have been around 81 at this point. Then was Daniel brought in before the king. Uh, and the king, I mean, it doesn't say there, but I mean, the fact that he was brought in, uh, he was clearly respected in Babylon. Uh, was he wheeled in? Was he infirm? I don't know. But whatever situation, whatever state of health he was in, certainly as an old man, he's brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said unto Daniel, Art thou Daniel, which are of the children of the captivity of Judah? 
whom the king, my father, brought out of Jewry. So he's just clarifying that Daniel is this individual. I have even heard of thee. Now, note the king's humility here. He says, well, even I, you know, Belshazzar, I've even heard of you, so you must be somebody. That the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. Well, of course, this begs the question, why wasn't Daniel called for immediately? Well, maybe it's the same situation that we've already commented on uh, previously in this study, that people don't like to go to godly sources to get their responses because they're not necessarily going to be the answers they want to hear. And that would clearly be, uh, in my mind, the the situation here that uh, Belshazzar did not want to hear what Daniel had to say. And yet now he's put into a position that with all these thousand or so lords and rulers and authorities watching on, Queen Mother's come and said, Daniel will answer your question. He's now got to go through with this. He's got to see what Daniel's going to say to him. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee that thou can make interpretations and dissolve doubts. If thou can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, we're going to see that that really isn't a particularly tempting offer because of all that is about to transpire. As we said, Daniel, 81 years of age, arriving in this banqueting hall. First of all, he gives Belshazzar a telling off, as you're going to see in a second, and then he begins to interpret the dream. So Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself. In other words, king, I'm not interested in anything you can give me. There's nothing you have that I want. He says, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. You know, it's interesting because Daniel doesn't hear go to God and plead. Now, maybe Daniel immediately saw it and recognized it and interpreted it. Uh, Or God just gave him that natural or supernatural ability to immediately read it. Because Daniel doesn't say, well, let me go away and pray and I'll come back. He just trusts that God is in this. Uh, Clearly, at his age, he's learned to trust God implicitly in every situation. Um, So, uh, and thou, king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, or grandfather, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would, uh, uh, and whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would set up, and whom he would put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild asses, and they fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. Now, you've got to remember, Daniel is standing there with all these nobility, the thousand or so that are gathered, speaking directly to the king, everyone listening, and Daniel giving this real, this king a real ticking off here, saying, you know, that Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, even when he was lifted up because of pride, God brought him down uh, to show him this important lesson that it is God that rules in the kingdom of man. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart, 
though thou knewest all of this. It's interesting. Clearly, Belshazzar was aware of this. He chose to ignore it. He chose to reject the light that he had been given. You know, Jesus made that comment about if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, that's certainly the case with uh, Belshazzar here. And Daniel, uh, you know, not just interpreting the dream. Clearly, you see this. He's going to use this as an opportunity to effectively preach the gospel, to preach uh, the majesty and the glory of the God of heaven. Uh, and he says, you knew all this, but you've lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords and thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them. And thou hast praised the gods of silver and the god of, bra- of gold and of brass, of iron, of wood, of stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways hast thou not glorified. Now, what a great statement. What a powerful statement to the world in which we live today, because they've worshipped gods of silver and gold, brass, iron, wood, of stone, all these things. Those things can't see, they don't know. And yet the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways has thou not glorified. You know, this world is going to be brought into judgment for precisely the same reason as this. And of course, this king being humbled now in front of all of these people. Just picture the situation in the middle of this big party with a thousand of his lords present, a hand out of nowhere writes on the wall. This king has this accident uh, and turns as white as a sheet. And the best men of the land are unable to help him. By now, words got out of what's happened. The whole city's probably heard about his problem. His mum hears about it, comes in and embarrasses him yet further. And eventually an 81-year-old man who's called in in front of his thousand lords gives him a right telling off. And we haven't even got to the interpretation of the writing yet. You know, this really is a classic case of God resisting the proud. You know, and it should serve as a graphic example that pride is an abomination to the Lord, as we're told in Proverbs 16, verse 5. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. Uh, and this is the writing that was written, as Daniel was just recounting. Uh, this is the part of the hand, notice, that was sent from him. Daniel immediately saying to the king, this hand was sent from God. And the writing was written, and this is the writing that was written, many, many tekel of Harsin. Okay, so this is now this statement. Now, there are those that have suggested that Daniel is the first recorded cryptologist that we have, somebody that breaks a code, that understands something that was written in code form as he interprets this writing on the wall. Now, there are, interestingly enough, if it interests you, it interests me, but there are encryptions that we find in the Bible. The Bible does use codes. Now, many of you would have heard of things like the Bible codes and the equidistant letter sequences and so on. And those are definitely there. We can verify, we can prove them. People do sometimes jump to illogical conclusions because of those things. What it does show is deliberate supernatural design. But in addition to that, there are other types of encryptions that we find in the Bible. There's one, which I'll explain in a moment, called Alban. And there's another that's referred to as Atbash. I'll explain why. Uh, in a moment. Albam is actually used in Isaiah 7 verse 6 and Atbash is used in Jeremiah 25 verse 26. So these codes are actually used, these methods of encryption are used to, in a sense, disguise the surface word 
and we find them used in the Bible. So when people ask the question, are there hidden codes in the Bible? Absolutely, there definitely are. And we have examples of these things. Now, just to give you an example of Alban, it's basically a, a transposition um, cipher, as it may be referred. So what you would do, you would take your first letter. Now, in the Hebrew, it would be an Aleph. Uh, and you then you, you kind of have an equal number of letters. And so you write your top lot. And then when you get to that midpoint, you then write the second half of your alphabet underneath. So let's look at the English, for example. You would have A to M. And then we have N to Z, because we, of course, have 26 letters in our alphabet, 13 at the top, and then we have 13 below. So what you would do in English, you would take your A, and for every A, you would write the letter N. For every B, you would write the letter O, and so on. So you get how it works. So you can make a code, and it writes a word that somebody that doesn't know the code would never be able to decipher. And it's exactly the same, of course, in the Hebrew, that the Aleph is replaced with the Lamed, and then you find the bet is replaced with a mame, the, the Hebrew letters. Uh, so that's why the code, this encryption is referred to as Al-Bam, uh, Aleph for Lamed, and then bet for mames, so A-L-B-M, so Al-Bam is why we get that uh, name for this particular code. And that's one of the variants that's used. Uh, the other one is Atbash, and all we do there is wrap the letters around on themselves. So you start with, let's look at the English, for example, you start with your A, uh, to get to the M, and then you wrap them round. So under the M, you then have an N. Under the L, going backwards, you have an O. Um, so you can see that. Now in the Hebrew, the Aleph in this case would become a Tau. It become the last letter. The first letter would become the last letter. The second letter in the alphabet, a Bet in the Hebrew, would become the penultimate letter. And you see how that that works. And so Aleph Tau at and then bet becomes sheen uh, or shin. Uh, so at bash is the the, term, uh, the way that's referred to, that particular encryption. And it seems to be that that's what was going on, that the writing was written in that way. And Daniel immediately recognizes that this is a type of encryption and immediately is able to decipher it for the king. And so this is the interpretation of the thing. Many God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel. Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. And then Perez, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So let's just break this down. Let's look at again what this is saying. This uh, in the Hebrew is probably what it would look like on the wall or something similar to this. Uh, the interpretation, uh, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Uh, that's what many means. Now notice it's repeated twice. God really emphasizes that point. That God has numbered your kingdom, you've been weighed and found wanting effectively, uh, is the second part of this tekel. Uh, and we, we have these expressions, don't we, uh, in the English, your number's up, weighed and found wanting. Uh, there are so many expressions in our language that come straight from the Bible, and yet people, of course, don't regard the Bible, uh, sadly, today. And the last one, very interesting, because this word Perez, now in the Hebrew, there are no vowels, uh, typically the way Hebrew is written. So, uh, this, which is why I've put there the, the E's uh, here, I've put them in as a, as like superscript, so you can see it's only the, the initial letters of the word, or the, the non-vowels, the consonants, that would be written. Um, but what's interesting is that word Perez is your kingdom is divided, that's what the word means, it means divided. But if you replace the E's with an A, you still have the same three consonants, 
But the word then becomes the word for Persians. So there's like a play here on that last word that the kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and the Persians. So this is the message that God is given. Now, again, Belshazzar, his worst fears now are realized. His time of playing games with the God of Israel is over uh, in, in the most dramatic fashion. And we read, then commanded Belshazzar and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. <laughs> Daniel is offered this place. Uh, it's utterly meaningless because that role, that position is going to last for a matter of hours uh, because this is the evening that the kingdom of Babylon, the empire of Babylon is about to fall and God clearly declaring now to Belshazzar that his time is up and so this offer of uh, rewards and uh, so on for Daniel of course Daniel's not interested in it he recognizes that the Lord is working in this situation and we read verse 30 and that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain so now he he knows he knows the whole picture now uh, because once you step out of this life Everything becomes clearer in terms of your understanding that God really is God. You know, the time of playing games now uh, for many people, they think it's, you know, they can carry on almost indefinitely. Um, but there is a day when everybody will be called to account. Belshazzar certainly uh, knows the error of his ways by this point. Now, we need to make just a couple of comments in closing uh, about what happened, because is all we're told here is that the the king himself is killed but why what happened well we have to re- uh, turn to cyrus the great now this is this incredible persian leader and king cyrus established the great medo persian empire now this is the empire if you remember chapter two of daniel and the the um head of gold and then the chest and arms of silver well that's what we're looking at now in that particular image this was the empire that follows on from babylon and Cyrus did this incredible thing of uniting the Medes and the Persians. They've been these two rival empires, very powerful, and Cyrus brings them together. Now, the way he does it is interesting because his father was Cambyses I. He was the king of East Elam, um, uh, Iran, uh, uh, kind of area today. Uh, and then his mother was uh, Madain, who was the daughter uh, of Astagius, the king of Media. So his mum and his dad were from either because of these different camps. And so Cyrus is able to bring them together. Now, in 550 BC, we're told that he attacked his corrupt father in law, uh, Astagius, and captured Ecbana without a battle. Now, that's significant. Now, it's a well documented historical event. But what is interesting is he did it without fighting. Um, he managed to subdue the people without lots of bloodshed. Now, he does the same thing here in Babylon. Um, But before we get to that, he successfully brought the Medes and the Persians together into this unified empire that lasts for over 200 years. His empire stretched from the Aegean Sea, okay, so up towards Turkey Way, uh, to the Indus River. So a huge empire. He was heralded as a brave and daring and yet a tolerant and magnanimous leader. In 1971, Iran celebrated the 2500th anniversary of his monarchy. He's still revered and recognized uh, in that part of the world. Now, 
From history, again, we understand on October the 12th, 539 BC, uh, Cyrus's general, under Cyrus's uh, instructions, captured Babylon, but again, in typical Cyrus style, without a battle. His army had diverted the flow of the river Euphrates into a canal that was further upstream and caused the water level to drop as it entered into Babylon itself. Now, Herodotus comments on this. He says that the height of the river dropped to the height of the middle of a man's thigh. So literally, it really was a stroke of genius because it allowed his army to get under the gates that were protecting the city by literally walking in through on the riverbed. Now, this is fascinating because when Cyrus made his grand entrance to Babylon just a few days after this, so remember that it was his army that came in under his general, who we'll talk about in a short while, um, Cyrus then a few days later comes in to survey Babylon, this now city that's his. And Josephus recalls that Daniel presents Cyrus with a scroll of Isaiah. Now Daniel apparently specifically showed him chapters 44 and 45 where Isaiah addresses Cyrus by name and describes the way that Belshazzar would fall and the way that Cyrus's army would enter the city. This is incredible. Remember that Isaiah had died 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And his prophecy probably somewhere in about 200 years before the events that are taking place. And of course, Cyrus was duly impressed. As a result, he subsequently frees the Jewish captives and allows them to return home to rebuild. Let me read to you from Isaiah 44. This is incredible. Think again. This is a couple of hundred years before the events that we're reading about in Daniel chapter 5. Thus says the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars. And think about this in terms of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the um, uh, the Magi, and all these uh, dream interpreters, or would be. Uh, and he says, he, he frustrates the tokens of the liars, and maketh the diviners mad, and turneth wise men backward. Interesting, isn't it? it? God is confusing these people and makes their knowledge foolish. The king calls for these individuals and everything they say is, is unhelpful. They can't give an interpretation. So already Isaiah, uh, absolutely spot on in his prophecy of what took place. That confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited. Now, as a result of this, this is exactly what happens. Jerusalem is re-inhabited. And to the cities of Judah you shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. So all of this happens as a result of what is going on at the tail end of chapter 5 of Daniel and Cyrus and his army coming in. Verse 27 says, That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. So here we have a prophecy that these rivers going into Babylon, are going to be dried up, which is exactly how the city fell to the Persians uh, under the rule of Cyrus. And thus, notice this, thus says Cyrus, 200 years before the event, Cyrus's name is recorded, before he's even born. Thus says Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shall be built. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. All of these things Cyrus approved and gave permission to the Jews to return and even gave them gifts to do so. 
Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Imagine Cyrus standing at the gates of Babylon, this 80 plus year old man reading these things, allowing him to read these things for himself. Thus says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will, notice this, I will loose the loins of kings. And the story is already out. 200 years before it happened, God prophesied that, uh, that Belshazzar was going to have a, a problem in the, the bathroom department. It will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break the pieces of the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Notice this that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name, am the God of Israel. Or if only the world would wake up and realize that God is the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by name, by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. If we turn to the book of Ezra, we read this. The opening statement. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Cyrus now taking over as a result of the events of January chapter 5. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Then he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And also put it in writing saying, thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia. Notice what he says, this Gentile king. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Clearly Cyrus aware that God is the one that rules in the kingdom of man. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he says, who is there among any of his people? Uh, God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Uh, he is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Incredible declaration. Now we have historical evidence of this. If you go to the British Museum, you will be able to go and see this. Uh, it's much smaller than you think it is, by the way. It's, it really is quite quite tiny. But this is a cylinder known as the Steel of Cyrus. And they found this. And although there's a little bit missing, there's enough text on there to get the gist of what Cyrus was saying. This was uh, written down. This was before you had um, you know, various other methods of recording and storing information. They wrote it into these clay cylinders so it could be preserved. And this is the, the key portion that's on there. Cyrus himself says, without any battle, he entered the town sparing any calamity. I returned to sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruined for a long time and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. A declaration, historical declaration of everything we find recorded in scripture. These things are just amazing. Now, just a couple of things in closing. We talk about the fall of Babylon, but yet scripture doesn't yet record a fall of Babylon. What we've seen recorded in chapter 5 is the fall of the kingdom of Babylon as existed at that time. Because although here we have, without a battle, Alexander later takes this as his own capital, uh, the city of Babylon did atrophy over the years, 
but it is presently being rebuilt. Uh, Saddam Hussein did a huge amount of restoration work to Babylon. And if you go onto Google Earth and you look down, you can see within a 50-mile region of the city itself, there is huge amount of dwelling and civilization and industry. Babylon still exists to this day. And yet, when we look in Scripture, Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, and also Revelation 17 and 18, you find that when Babylon is to be destroyed, ultimately, it will never again be inhabited, that the building materials will not be reused. It will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why am I saying this? Well, because a lot of people think and talk about Babylon being destroyed. It wasn't destroyed. It was overtaken. It was uh, made the capital of, uh, first of all, or the, the Cyrus takes over first and Alexander and so on through the centuries. Uh, but there's this clear prophecy in Scripture that Babylon will be destroyed, but only after once again becoming a center of world religion. Now, watch the news. Watch what is going on in Iran at the moment, in Iraq at the moment. Of course, Babylon is in Iraq. It's not far from Baghdad. It will become, I believe, a center for world religion once again. It will become a uniting place where Christians, so-called Muslims, the Roman Catholic Church, will all come together. There are many prophecies that speak of this. In Revelation 17, 18, we have two interesting chapters. People speak about mystery Babylon. That is a complete misnomer. In Revelation 17 and 18, it's mystery, comma, Babylon the Great. Okay, the mystery is that this city that has ruled over the kings of the earth right from the time of Babel, from the time of Nimrod, will eventually be destroyed. It speaks of all the false religious systems being brought back together and destroyed. Some interesting chapters to compare Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 50, 51 and Revelation 17, 18. You'll see that there are a number of similarities with the destruction ultimately that is going to come. So just to make that very clear. Our last verse then, and Darius the Medan took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. So this 62-year-old man, the leader of this army for uh, Cyrus, the general who comes in and conquers Babylon on that evening, uh, no doubt the one responsible for having Belshazzar put to death, is the one that then becomes the ruler over Babylon. But don't get this confused, because we find that Cyrus himself was the king or the ruler of the empire. But Guberu is the historical name we know, uh, but Darius or Darius is the one who is placed over Babylon. Okay, so he's, he's kind of subordinate to Cyrus, but Darius is the one, the 62-year-old man, and he is the individual that we're going to meet, Lord willing, next week when we get into chapter 6 and we start to look at the events there with the whole situation with the lion's den. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the rest of these kings later in our study in the book of Daniel. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true from the beginning. That, Lord, your word doesn't fade. It doesn't pass like the flowers do. But, Lord, it is there for eternity. And we thank you for these records that remind us, Lord, that pride and arrogancy, Lord, will never, ever win respect or any accolades in your book. That, Lord, you put down those that are proud. And so, Father, help us to... Live lives in humility before you. We pray for the leaders and the governments of this world. That, Father, they would recognize before it's too yet too late that you are the God who appoints those that are in authority and power. That, Lord, you can raise up one and put down another. And that, Lord, ultimately all the leaders of this world will bow their knee to Jesus Christ as the Lord 
and the King of Kings. We just thank you, Lord, that you are on the throne. That, Lord, nothing surprises you. Nothing takes you by surprise. And, Lord, help us to trust you, knowing that you're not only you're in control of the nations and the governments of this world, but, Lord, you are in control of our lives too. And, Lord, may we surrender the throne of our hearts to you, acknowledging that you are truly the Lord of all. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.